Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, I'm attached to my family, friends, and loved ones, but the Buddha explicitly teaches that renunciation of attachments is the path of enlightenment. His disciples say an attachment blossoms fall and an aversion weeds spread. Yet, I cannot renounce my family. I can't give up my friendship. I can't stop loving my loved ones. How do I reconcile this? This, I think, is the very heart of the Buddha's teaching. The problem you bring up is often misunderstood. To renounce your attachments does not mean to renounce your family, friends, or loved ones. To renounce your attachments is to renounce your own idea of those people. You have a perception of a person, and that perception is flawed and incomplete. But because we deludedly believe it to be true reality, we have feelings and emotions and associations attached to them. That is all happening in our own minds, and it only leads to suffering. I see... So, to renounce my loved ones is not to stop loving them, but rather to stop loving my own idea of them. Precisely. The Buddha recognizes the situation as it is. We live in this world, and we have relationships in it. That is an unavoidable reality of our nature. Every being arises in this world due to causes and conditions, such as having parents and grandparents and so on. However, to mistake people, relationships, feelings, or experiences as truly existing to regard them as not being subject to emptiness and impermanence. That is delusion, and that is avoidable. Am I still allowed to be pious, respectful, and deferent to my parents? Or to be faithful, affectionate, and devoted to my romantic partners? Absolutely, so long as you do it without attachment, delusion, or ill will. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be discussing relationships in Buddhism. How does Buddhism perceive friendships and romantic relationships? How does this relate to non-attachment? How does one maintain these relationships and follow the precepts? We hope you enjoy. So, how does Buddhism perceive friendships and romantic relationships? Let us start by defining friendships and romantic relationships such that we can understand what the Buddha has to say about them. Romantic relationships and friendships are both associations between people which take place over a period of time. They reflect some mutual feelings of affection, love, devotion, etc. These feelings determine behavior toward and with those people. The assumption is that if the relationships are good, then when they end, there are feelings of loss, sadness, pain, grief, etc. The Buddha understands that these relationships are a reality in the world, and human beings are inherently social creatures, And to not have relationships is destructive to one's mindfulness, to one's wellness, and to one's behavior. However, there's a component here that the Buddha has taken issue with. Buddhism is at its heart recognizing that the way we understand the world is flawed. There is reality the way it is, and there is reality the way we perceive it to be. This perception is a very flawed carbon copy, and how flawed it is or what kind of flaws it has are all directly related to our karma, our mindfulness, our cultivation of the Eightfold Path, and so on. From that, there is the assumption that all of this stands in the way between us and interacting with reality as it is. To that end, when we think of things, 
relate with things, and so on, we are actually relating with our own image, our own perception, our own copy of reality, and not with reality itself. So when we think of hot stove, for example, we are bringing up an image that our mind has taken of a hot stove, and it is very likely that that image of hot stove does not correspond to any real hot stove in the world, because real hot stoves have mass, they have heat, they have an energy source, etc. And our mental images have none of that. Furthermore, that image of the hot stove has a connotation of danger. We have a memory of touching it, getting burned, and now our behavior is determined by that memory. However, that memory is attached to this image or impression we have in our minds, and really has nothing at all to do with the reality of a hot stove. Friendships and relationships are very much the same way. We have images and impressions of people in our lives, and those images or impressions of people have a number of characteristics. One, they are an incomplete picture of that person, because that person has a life and feelings and experiences outside of your own perceptions of them. Two, they have connotations and associations through memories, judgments we have made on their characters, and associations and connotations we have that are informed by experiences outside of that relationship and outside of our interactions with that person. And three, they determine how we feel and act around that person. And four, this is all happening inside of our own heads and has very little to do with the reality of that person as they are. So there's a couple of things in there that I'm going to poke at for a bit. So before we were talking about, you know, the idea of a hot stove, we say, and it is very likely that that image of a hot stove does not correspond to any real hot stove in the world. In my case, there's a very specific hot stove that I'm thinking of that I had this experience with. How does this, I'm not going to say my memory of that hot stove is the stove, but I will say that it has a pretty strong connection to the specific stove that I remember burning my hand on. I'm kind of having a hard time reconciling that. Like, If we separate our perceptions of things like this from the actual things themselves, that would still not change the way we behave around these things like surely this teaching is not trying to say so give all hot stoves a chance this one might not burn you that's ridiculous you're absolutely right about that so even though the memory itself is not the stove itself obviously like you say we should not give all hot stoves a chance because some of them may or may not burn you but what i will say is like in the buddhist teaching the idea is there that memory is incomplete and that memory is colored and biased by our connotations and our associations. And the more of those that we have, and also the more time that passes and the more times we remember something, the more distant from reality that memory becomes. So the memory I have of reading the script for the hermit and hearer scene is very vivid because I did that very recently. If you ask me in a month about every little detail of that scene because of the amount of time that's been going on and because of connotations and associations I have and because the many times between now and then when I will be remembering it again, all of that will make the memory depart from the actual reality of what it was like to record that scene. This is very analogous to 
saving a JPEG off the internet. If you save or copy a JPEG enough times, every single time, there's a small amount of flaw in the way that it saves and the way that it compresses, such that if you do it enough times, you actually start to visually see on the JPEG itself that there are now JPEG artifacts. The image is now dinged up. It's now lower quality. It's now not what it started out as. It's changed over time. And memory works in the exact same way. Every time we remember something, we're not remembering that thing. We are remembering ourselves remembering. This is what the common psychological consensus is in the sciences now, by the way. The neurosciences are saying that we are remembering our memories rather than remembering the thing themselves. And Buddhism agrees here. In that regard, memory has a way of declining. It has a way of skewing further and further and further from reality. And this is also affected by how we feel and what we're doing and what we think and what we believe while we are making those memories. For example, every memory we have of a bad experience is a memory of a bad experiences and it has a connotation of bad because we were feeling bad in the moment. But no experience in reality as it is, is inherently truly bad. It's neutral. It is what it is. It is only our perceptions and only our engagement with it such that we have desire and attachment that causes us to feel as though it is one way or the other. Okay, so I can accept that. Like obviously memory has flaws as one gets more and more distant from that memory. But what about, so in our script, we have the four different points about, you know, friendships and relationships. And the last point, all of this is happening inside our own heads and has very little to do with the reality of the person that they are. I don't think I agree with that. Like my eyes and ears do perceive things that happen. I will acknowledge that any picture I have of another person is incomplete, but I'm not sure how much I can agree with this idea that it has very little to do with the reality of that person. Especially if we're talking about a person that we interact with often. And so there's a lot of data there to form that picture of the person. Will it ever be perfect? No. But I don't think it's as flawed as being presented here. That's a valid critique of what's going on here. And I think that it can be reconciled by understanding that when we say in Buddhism here, referring to reality as it is, or reality of a person or a thing as they are, we are not necessarily invalidating the experiences that we have with people and with things. What we're actually doing is referring to the fact that in every single instant, something is different than it has been or will be because of the truth of impermanence. And that being the case, how we think of a person is flawed in the sense that, or how we think of a thing as well, is flawed in the sense that it naturally assumes that something is consistent or constant, constant in the best case and inconsistent in the worst case. But if we remember the truth of impermanence and emptiness and dependent origination and so on, then we start to see that thinking in terms of personality traits, thinking in terms of likes and dislikes, thinking in terms 
of this is that person's character. Those might be flawed mistakes where we're looking at a snapshot in time and mistakenly viewing it as capital T truth or capital R reality. And so what we are doing with this issue of non-attachment and with this issue of relationships and friendships in Buddhism is we're not attacking our memories of events. Those certainly did happen in the past. What we're really doing is attacking our perceptions, our categorical knowledge, our categorical understanding, our connotations and associations with things. It may seem a little bit barbaric. It may seem a little bit extreme to say this, but one of the goals of Buddhism is equanimity regarding pleasure and pain as the same. And what that means is taking away our connotations of good with pleasure and taking away our connotations of bad with pain. Now that doesn't mean we start rushing after touching hot stoves so that we can have just as much of that as we can of the pleasure of eating something that tastes good or whatever. But it does mean stopping our concepts of hot stoves as being dangerous or stopping our concepts of eating something tasty as being absolute good. Because while it was a pleasant memory, while it was an unpleasant memory, that memory is a snapshot of your feeling. It's not a snapshot of that thing. And so as long as we are aware of the processes of the mind and we understand their relationship to the truths of impermanence, emptiness, and so on, then we're not making those mistakes. Then we are a little bit further along the path, if that makes sense. I think this is, language like this is part of the reason I think that Buddhism is sometimes labeled as a solipsistic religion. Yes. This, this feels very solipsistic. Yes, and we should emphasize that it isn't because Buddhism does validate shared experiences and it does validate the things that have happened in our memory. It does validate the fact that we are making a perception of something. But we should recognize that what's going on is not just experience and it's not just cognition. In fact, in the past, in my graduate school work, I've labeled this as cognition experience with a hyphen because we are experiencing and cognizing that experience and therefore categorizing that experience and therefore applying associations to that experience all while it's happening. The brain is a very, very powerful computer in that regard. And the brain is always, always, always doing this. It is applying all the information that it has to every situation that it experiences. And all of this kind of happens behind the scenes. This is very, very distant from our conscious experience. And it only comes up whenever we remember stuff. We're trying to pull out all of the tags that our brain has applied to an experience whenever we remember stuff. And in that regard, Buddhism is just trying to have as few tags as possible be applied to something. It's trying to turn the base, as it were, of the mind doing all of these processes. That's why a lot of meditation in English is translated as cessation meditation, because it's trying to stop these processes from taking over how we go about living in the world, because all that stuff gets in the way of reality as it is. It's like digital and analog. The real world is very analog. But the brain, being a hunk of meat with electricity going through it, 
seems to want to make it digital. And it may have very high fidelity and high resolution so that we might mistake it for analog, but we should still recognize that it is digital and still try to work towards experiencing things in analog, if that makes sense. I think I get that, and I will spend some time thinking about it off screen. For now, let's get back to the script. So how does all of this relate to non-attachment? The Buddha regards our suffering as being caused by desire. This desire causes attachment to things that are not real or substantial. This, in concrete terms, refers to the fact that our loved ones will eventually pass away, our friendships will eventually break apart, and our romantic relationships will end. And yet, we desire that they don't, because we are attached to the pleasure that we get from them. This inevitably leads to suffering when the loss occurs, and we feel grief, pain, loss, etc. Furthermore, as I mentioned before, the attachment is to something that originates in ourselves, and has little, if anything, to do with the other person. So what is the solution? It is to recognize that our attachment is an attachment to something that is in ourselves. That means we ought to try to correct our perceptions, remedy our delusions, and achieve non-attachment. And how do we do that? We must acknowledge that our relationships are impermanent, that the people we have relationships with are empty of a substantial and permanent self, that we ourselves are also empty of a substantial and permanent self, that our perceptions of people are incomplete and biased self-originating perceptions, that they both cause and are caused by desire and attachment, and that they lead to suffering and away from perceiving reality as it is. In the context of non-attachment, we have previously discussed its relationship to the middle way, and that discussion is again relevant here. Our feelings of love for romantic partners, our feelings of camaraderie and fellowship for our friends, our feelings of love and devotion for our parents, these are all feelings that exist on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum is extreme emotion. There's obsession, fixation, infatuation, so on. This side of the spectrum also holds extreme hatred and vitriol and disapproval. On the other hand of the spectrum is complete disregard, a complete lack of feeling of any kind for a person. This is total detachment. Both extremes are unhealthy and lead to destruction. Obsession is destructive to oneself and to the person who is being obsessed over. The same is true of hatred. Complete disregard is also destructive. Bodhisattvas, for example, are taught specifically to feel pity and compassion for all sentient beings. To ignore suffering, pain, illness, and all the awful things that plague sentient beings is not the way to remedy our own suffering or anyone else's. Therefore, those on the path are taught that they should achieve equanimity the middle way, and non-attachment. That means that what they do behaviorally does not change that much in most cases, except maybe that they will be more kind and compassionate, and so on. They still show respect, devotion, love to family, friends, and loved ones. However, what is going on inside is different. They are doing these things without attachment, without desire, without delusion that the things that they are attached to or desire for are permanent, real, substantial, in any sort of way. And that, I think, is the important difference. How does one maintain these relationships and follow the precepts? This question of the precepts is quite an interesting one. The precepts are not static, nor are they the same for everybody, nor are they all followed in the same way for every Buddhist. So let's start 
with the distinction in the precepts between those for a monk and those for a layperson. We'll start with lay people and come back to monks. For lay people, there are typically five precepts. These are one, abstention from killing living beings, which is associated with the renunciation of killing and the virtues of kindness and compassion and the good physical deed of saving a life. Two, abstention from theft, which is associated with the renunciation of stealing, the virtues of generosity and renunciation, and the good physical deed of giving. Three, abstention from sexual misconduct, which is associated with the renunciation of it, the virtues of contentment and respect for faithfulness, and the good physical deed of abstinence. Four, abstention from verbal misconduct, which is associated with the renunciation of lying, of speaking divisive speech, of speaking harsh speech, and of speaking frivolous speech. This one is associated with the four good verbal deeds of honesty, concord, effective speech, and uprightness and with the virtues of being honest and dependable. And finally, five, abstention from intoxication, which is associated with the renunciation of greed, hatred, and wrong views, and which is associated with the three good deeds of mental purity, kindness and compassion, and right view, and with the virtues of mindfulness and responsibility. There are indeed at least five more on top of these for monks, but many of them are instructive with regards to how to live a monastic life. These add detail and nuance, and they become complicated with regards to different schools of Buddhism, and so we won't discuss them too much. Suffice to say that it is entirely possible, and indeed encouraged, in the precepts to maintain relationships while upholding them at the same time. I think that they are self-explanatory doctrinally, but we should mention that they can be interpreted and practiced differently between different sects and schools of Buddhism. In practice, these rules exist on a spectrum from being hard concrete rules, the violation of which is a cardinal sin, to being ideals to strive for, the violation of which is not a reflection on the lacking of one's character, but on one's existence in samsara and their goals and desires to do better. No killing can mean being vegetarian entirely and never killing any living being as long as you live, or it can mean eating meat so long as you didn't kill the animal yourself and express gratitude and thanks for it giving its life to feed you. No stealing can be thought of in absolute or relative terms. Would it be immoral to steal from a thief? Maybe not. No sexual misconduct can mean absolute abstinence, or it can mean being open-minded, understanding consent, and being accepting of others' sexual habits, as long as nobody is getting hurt, and as long as consent is established. No verbal misconduct can mean only ever saying things that are nice and sweet, or it can account for using skillful means to enlighten others. And finally, no intoxication can mean absolute abstinence from alcohol or any other type of drug, or it can mean using those things in moderation such that they don't interfere with your mindfulness and your practice. To that end, we see a lot of Buddhist monks in different schools who may or may not drink alcohol who may or may not get married and have a family, who may or may not actually leave the householder lifestyle, which involves having a job, having this family, having possessions, and doing things in the world, all the way to the end of the spectrum of completely renouncing all worldly possessions and relationships and living in the forest or living in a temple or a monastery and doing nothing but meditating and studying the sutras. There's a lot of good doctrinal arguments for both ends of those spectrums, but we should understand that the precepts are nuanced and can be flexible depending on who you ask. So the 
two precepts I see that are specifically intersecting with relationships with other people are, of course, abstinence from sexual misconduct, which, I mean, that's just the state of being human. That's something that a lot of us are bad at, but still obviously a positive thing to strive for. But actual one that looks like it might be difficult, like actually technically difficult, is abstention from verbal misconduct. Especially if we're talking about like no harsh speech or frivolous speech. It feels like in a lot of friendships, a lot of speech is going to end up becoming frivolous. So, and every once in a while, harsh words are needed for someone. I can think of a couple of times where I have been in a conversation where I was subject to harsh words, but I needed that because I was messing up. So how does one walk that line, verbal misconduct? That's a very good question. And this is probably one of the most flexible ones. And I emphasize that it is one of the most flexible ones because there is a change in East Asian Buddhism from being only extremely deferent and respectful and venerating the Buddha and the sutras and the Sangha and everything to questioning whether we should be that way and to emphasizing skillful means as the way to achieve or teach or lead others to enlightenment. For example, there's a famous Japanese poet who says the Buddha is horse piss and a shit stick. And he didn't say that because he was trying to insult the teaching, trying to insult the Buddha, trying to insult the Dharma or anyone who does Buddhism. What he was doing was actually recognizing that understanding the truth of suffering is just as enlightening as understanding the truth of its absence. To that end, understanding samsara and the way that samsara works and samsaric things like bad words and like these types of associations, these are also just as enlightening as pure things, pure and impure, and the distinction thereof becomes questioned in East Asian Buddhism. And so in relationships, harsh speech used skillfully, used appropriately, used with the correct intention is very much permitted. And it's the same with frivolous speech. It's the same with any other kind of speech that you can think of. In the case that you're bringing up where you were subject to harsh words, but you needed them, one might say that that could be affectionate speech. The affectionate speech is speech that's supposed to make you feel better and make you feel closer to that person and is supposed to show you something that the other person is feeling for you that you didn't know that they were feeling. And thus, harsh speech, if someone's giving that to you, it could mean that they care. It could mean that they are intending for your character to be better, for hearing it. It's trying to help someone. What this is trying to avoid is hurting strangers' feelings because you feel good when you do that. It's trying to avoid saying mean things because you're mean-spirited. It's trying to avoid saying frivolous things because you want to fill an empty space artificially without actually adding meaning or anything to a conversation. And so overall, in a grand scheme of things, in relationships and out of them, these precepts at the very least, are asking you to be mindful of these activities, these domains of your life. And being mindful of speech is a very important one because we talk all the time and we listen to things all the time and we communicate all the time. 
we're either writing or speaking for the vast majority of our day if we're interacting with anybody else. And so this is asking you to just think twice about your intention, just think twice about how your intention is reflected in what you say, and just think twice about how the person who you're speaking to or communicating to will receive what you're saying, and if that's what you intended. So in that regard, we have been led to question by lots of Buddhist commentators and lots of Buddhist doctrine in East Asia, this distinction between good and bad, morally right and morally wrong, harsh and gentle, affectionate and insulting, frivolous and skillful, because all of that is relative to the circumstances that we're in and to our intention as we're saying them and to whatever situation this communication is taking place in. We hope you have enjoyed our discussion of relationships in Buddhism. Join us next week where we will discuss the Bodhisattva Samantabhadra, who is also known as Pushan in Chinese and Fugen in Japanese. Who is Samantabhadra? What are some stories about Samantabhadra? What are some devotional texts and rituals relating to him? We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. See you there. Thank you for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or a review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha, link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.